Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number four of Reformed Podmatics. Today's episode, we will be talking about our heroes, our favorite theological heroes from church history. And this episode is really inspired by a classis meeting we had about a year ago where some of the... uh, What is classis? The classis is our regional (laughs) uh, pastoral or leadership meeting, I guess you could say, where elders... And pastors and deacons meet together in our region. So our region is Central California. Um, it's about twenty-five Christian Reformed churches from yeah. north from the North Valley. I think Lincoln is the farthest north. That's near Roseville, mm-hmm. all the way down to Bakersfield, and then the western end of the triangle is in the Bay. So from right. the Bay to north of Sacramento, down to Bakersfield, and everyone who's in that triangle of Christian Reformed churches comes to the meeting and. We approve pastors, and we at times even will discipline a pastor, or usually we look at different things that are happening in the denomination. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I just would have rolled right through that. And <laughs> there's people wondering, yeah, what is classis? It's If you're a Presbyterian, it's the same thing, basically, as a Presbytery meeting. Yeah. Um, so it's regional. We have synod once a year. That takes place in June for us. And that is our national meeting of all the different presbyteries. And that includes, because we're the Christian Reformed Church of North America, Canadian churches yep. and American churches. Yeah. Um, and so we were at Classis, and that's where examinations happen for ordinance who are being prepared to go into the ministry. And one of the questions was, who are some of your favorite Reformed theologians or authors? And so this is something that I think about often. Mm. Um I love to drop names. This is something that I'm, I'm bad at because I just love to do it. But today we figured we'd give ourselves a little bit of space to do this uh, because, well, it's a good window into what we think as pastors and how we approach our pastoral ministry uh, and how we approach the theological task and task explaining theology to people in the pew. Um, a lot of what we do as pastors is built upon trust networks of, uh, and we have frameworks in our minds of how we think of different theological or biblical questions. Um, And there's oftentimes, I know for me, uh, that I'm asked questions by people in Mm -hmm. our church or by students, Mm -hmm. and I don't know the answer to it, but I know where I'm going to look because I have favorite theologians who I know have expertise in particular fields of study. And so if it's a particular biblical question, I will I will have a good clue as to which commentaries I'll pick up and would recommend to them. If it's a theological question, mm-hmm. I know which theological books I'm going to be going through and looking for answers in. If it's apologetics or something in the realm of philosophy, I, I also know where I'm going to turn. Yeah. And so I'm not really an expert in many of these mm-hmm. fields, but I know who the experts are. And so... Uh, this is a fun way for us to sort of express our personal uh, theological endeavors and what sure. we're interested in and who we follow, because that gives you a window into how we think. And so, yeah, in terms of like we were talking before we started about how when we're stuck, hmm. where do we go? Right. Whether that's even personally, just feeling a little bit stuck and stale in what we're reading, and we need a new voice, we need to hear a different perspective. Where are we going to go to learn something or be stretched in our faith? Or when we're stuck homiletically, like at times, I preach a lot more than Zach Mm -hmm. um, because I'm the preaching pastor here at our church. And so if I'm really stuck on a text, who am I going to go look to on this particular text? It's unfortunate that it takes me getting stuck in order to look in certain (laughs) directions, but... Um, at times, of course, preachers know that that happens, and it's great that we have this thing called the internet, 
which sorts through all kinds of mm. data for us, and we can just <laughs> look up. Um, for example, we'll hear later, what did Spurgeon say when he preached on this text? Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing is what we're unpacking a little bit in this in this episode. Yeah, so part of the fun of this is is showing sort of the great tradition, I guess, that we, right. we see ourselves and our, our Christian understanding of the world. It's bigger than just what people have been saying for the past five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, often... Christians today can get stuck in in just what's what's the latest greatest thing, uh, but having theologians, particularly dead theologians, yeah, I think all of six of ours are dead. Are, yeah, they are, um, and so yep. th- that helps us to root ourselves in the past as well, and to see that Christianity is bigger than just today or yesterday. It it, it really is this deep tradition, and we draw from it um, often, and so. The way we're going to go about doing this episode is we're going to pick, we've all, we both picked three of our favorite theologians or pastors or figures from church history, and so we're going to go back and forth sharing about our favorites, and then we will transition into uh, sort of a rapid fire, just what are some names that we love. Maybe they don't make our top three list, um, but then we'll, so we'll get to just really name drop at that point. And then finally, we'll get into a question of the dangers of Reformed hero worship. Um, and between the two sections, I would say with our top three, those would be names who really form us yeah. and who we could hardly find a fault with, if that makes sense. Not that they're, of <laughs> course, perfect people, but those are the ones we really are in sync with. And as I look at my list of rapid fire, there are names who can impact some of the things right. that I say, but you know, are really not the my champion, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. and, and I would want to be careful with a couple other names in my rapid fire too, like say, well, there's some things that this person <laughs> says that I am really not a fan of, but man, when he uses a sermon, she's a master sermon illustrator, something along yeah. those lines. So anyways, who's your first one, Zach? My first one, and if anybody knows me well, they know this about me already, my first one is a pretty obscure Reformed voice from 19th century America. He was a theologian in the German Reformed Church, although he grew up in the Presbyterian Church, sort of the old-school Presbyterian Church. And his name is John Williamson Nevin. Uh, I found Nevin in seminary uh, by being really interested in the questions of church tradition and the, the Catholicity of the Reformed tradition in particular, and also of, of sacramental theology. So in one of my papers in seminary that I had to write, which was probably my favorite that I wrote, I did it comparing Nevin's sacramental theology on the one hand to Calvin's, um, and then also, interestingly, to that of Edward Bouvery Pusey. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but he was a uh, sort of an Oxford uh, tractarian theologian alongside John uh, John Henry Newman, and although Pusey never became Roman Catholic, he had a high view of the Eucharist, and so I compared Nevin's view to his view and really fell in love with Nevin's work, not just on the Eucharist, but also on the incarnation and the centrality of the incarnation and the fact that God has become man. Um, Nevin went through a sort of uh, revolution in his thinking coming and growing up in the Presbyterian Church, being trained in the Westminster catechism um, and confession uh, he was raised there but and he would study under Charles Hodge but would eventually come to really wonder about the Catholic part of the reformed tradition and would wonder if the the Protestant world had gone too far and strayed from that of the patristics by still, being more congregationalist or, yeah so yeah. it was it was tending in that direction and okay. so for, for Nevin to switch from the Presbyterian Church to the German Reformed Church, it was for him almost a sort of conversion. We think of, mm-hmm. of continental Reformed theology as being very synonymous with Presbyterian theology, and in many ways it is. Yeah. But for Nevin, it was a conversion, and he saw the German Reformed Church as a, I guess, more Catholic denomination than his Presbyterian denomination. Um, and so... He's a controversial figure even to this day. Some people have very, very 
harsh opinions about Nevin. What on what? Thinking that he would be a Romanizer oh, or okay, his tendencies sure. would lead him towards Rome. Maybe because of such a high view of the sacrament? He had a high view of the sacrament. He had a high view of the value of liturgy. So towards the end of his life, he worked on creating a liturgy for their denomination that okay. took a lot from the Book of Common Prayer um, and from other liturgical texts, but also from the Palatinate liturgies from Germany which is where his church was sort of based out of, the German Reformed Church. But the Cate- Heidelberg Catechism comes out of the Pauline. Right, yeah. so the Heidelberg Catechism, Heidelberg is in Germany, and so that was the one confession of the German Reformed Church. <laughs> they did not hold to the three forms. Oh. It was just the Heidelberg Catechism. Wow, I didn't know that. And so Nevin loved the Catechism, and in fact, his book on it, The History and Genius of the Heidelberg Catechism, is one of my favorite books on the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and so... Yeah, and in many awesome. ways, his his theology of the incarnation, of the person of Christ, uh, and his union with us and of the sacraments has been very influential to my thinking and to my under, understanding justification, but more importantly, understanding sanctification, mm-hmm. that through my union with Christ, Christ lives in me, and it is through his power that I am being renewed from within and so that's one great big reason that I, I really appreciate John Williamson Nevin. Cool. And my first name is one that somebody could probably predict if they've already heard our series or our, our, <laughs> our episode on revival. That is Jonathan Edwards. And just as I get into why I love Edwards, I think it's probably most helpful for people to know that there are really two approaches to Edwards. One is the more intellectual philosophical approach and the other is the more pastoral approach. And so I have not done a lot of heavy lifting with Edwards in terms of getting into some of his denser work, particularly stuff with natural philosophy, which he was a a massive figure in American history in that regard. But really reading his sermons and his resolutions and um, more some of his more accessible works like the religious affections or the divine and supernatural light, um, his work on revival and what that looked like in Northampton, that which was sort of what launched him into popularity not just in the United States yeah. but in England um, when that was his work on the revival of the 1730s in Northampton spread to England really made him mm. a popular figure there and somebody that people were curious about certainly did he ever did he ever travel to england i'm curious you know i I don't even know um (laughs) but uh interesting i would say the appeal to edwards for me is that he does such a masterful job of being a extremely refined reformed thinker to so much so that when you read his words, you just get the sense that this man is like a theological surgeon. Hmm. And I've, I would say that is the case of all three of my names, that yeah. words are used so carefully and so powerfully in each of um, the work of, of my three guys. And Edwards, of course, is uh, he fits that description quite well, while also appealing to the emotions. I would say all three of mine as well would encapsulate not just a intellectual approach to theology and life but also appeal to the personal transformational even emotional person um and you know the 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 mind in the fullest Hmm. sense not just in the intellectual sense but but the uh the mind in that um these people including jonathan edwards will speak to somebody who is grieving and sad and give them an uplifting message or even just meet them in that grief by some of the things that they write about. Um, And so Mm -hmm. what I love of Edwards are particularly his sermons, which do that. Uh, My favorite sermon of Edwards is not the one that everyone (laughs) knows, um, which is uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How could that not be your favorite? That's an amazing sermon. (laughs) I will say something about that sermon in that people almost never read the end. Totally. And so the end is basically, how might I be delivered from this fate? Yeah. And how might I be delivered from the wrath of God? And it is absolutely full of hope at Mm -hmm. the end. It is an amazing exposition of 
salvation by grace. And yeah. so even though that isn't there in that sermon, that is not my favorite sermon. It, it has to be heaven, a world of love on 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, 1 Corinthians 13, this description of love is, of course, what the Christian is called to seek in their life is to pursue love, to be kind and gentle and patient and so forth. But he says, because we see now through a glass that is dimly lit, uh, we see through, uh, we see now in part, but we will see then fully uh, when we are in heaven. There will be this experience of the love of God and the love of Christian brotherhood and sisterhood that is so exciting to think about. And it's a very long sermon. I think it's about 7,000 words. And my sermons are typically about 2,000 words to give you some uh, awareness of the comparison. And it's long and it is absolutely full of what, how God, how much God loves us and cares for us and will show that love not just in this life, but perfectly, of course, in in the life to come. We, we will experience it perfectly with nothing and no barriers in between. So there's that, and then there's also a, ser- a great sermon that he wrote called um, Fullness. Well, i got to get the title right. I wish I had it <laughs> written down. It's, it's something along the lines edit of it out. Fullness, um, fullness, Rest, and Sweet Refreshment in the Presence of Christ. I believe mm-hmm. that's the name of it. Um, where he talks about how the Christian isn't just saved into uh, kind of a sparse, ascetic way of living, but the Christian mm-hmm. is saved and to come to a banqueting table of the Lord and mm-hmm. how we, we find fullness, we find rest, we find sweet refreshment in Christ as we are not only saved in the moment of regeneration, but we find that to be true for our whole lives. Yeah. And so, again, appealing to the mind and great theology, mm-hmm. but also to... Um, wow, we we need to be lifted up with yeah. good preaching, good reform preaching. So that's part of the reason I love Edwards. I can tell even from that last sermon, just so your quick summarization of it, how much he resembles to me John Piper, or maybe I yep. should better say that yep. how much John Piper resembles him. Absolutely, that we are not saved because God's a killjoy and He wants to restrict us from doing things we like to do, you have to but pull that, us out of the world. But He's yep. giving us something better, and you also see. I guess that leads in well to my next uh, favorite <laughs> theologian, who's not much of a theologian, but his name is C.S. Lewis. You probably are familiar with him. C.S. Lewis uh, is also a part of the reason Piper came to the conclusion that we are to uh, glorify God by being satisfied in him. And it had to do with his uh, his famous quote. Uh, I don't know the exact quote. I don't have it written down, but that we are to... Uh, not find ourselves so preoccupied with the mud pies and the slums as we are with the sandcastles uh, on at the sea. Um, and so we ought to be looking not just for what God is calling us away from, but what God is calling us to and to himself and to find our joy in him. And that following Christ is, yes, it's losing your life, but it's gaining so much more. Uh, but C.S. Lewis, for me, the reason that I love him and it, actually, to be honest with you, I've met, read much more about C.S. Lewis's life and his thinking than I have read of C.S. Lewis himself. Um, I've read more biographies than I have actual books by Lewis. Well, his whole catalog is short books, right? And so you wouldn't right. see a stack of his books and it would be three feet tall. Yeah. I mean, it's only Even the probably... Chronicles of Narnia are very yeah. short children's books. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he doesn't have any major tomes or anything because that's just not what he's trying to accomplish. No, no, no. At least not the not the books that he's written for Christianity. Um, he he had written a few other yeah, academic probably, books, yeah, academic books on, uh, uh, on medieval literary. literature and yeah. stuff like that. Um, and I'm not sure as to the size of those, to be honest. Uh, but C.S. Lewis for me had a very there's lots of things and reasons he's influential, but he had a very big view of God and a big view of the goodness of God and the goodness of God's world and of, of joy and of, uh, how should I put it? He, he was good at reading the world and mm. understanding philosophy 
um, and understanding what was good with the world, but also what was bad with the world. And yeah. he, he writes in a way that I've recently heard described using the word effervescent. And I think that that, that is a good <laughs> word. He was, it's a sense of joyfulness and of hope yeah. um, that even though the modern world was beginning to look more and more um, as something that he would have opposed um, and, and didn't really care for all that much, he really appreciated the medieval world. Um, <laughs> he, he wasn't dismayed or overwhelmed and, or he wasn't losing hope. Yeah. He was sober minded um, about those things. Yeah. Yeah. And he was always very careful in his yeah. thinking. He was by no means a Calvinist. So I don't share that in common with him. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that his thinking is too out of step with, with Calvinism mm. as a reformed pastor. I think I can say that with good authority, and I've heard other Reformed pastors make good arguments in that same direction. Uh, but C.S. Lewis just had, there was something about his person. He's the kind of person that I would have loved to have spent time with, chatting with, yeah. uh, discussing every sort of issue with, learning from. And so it's more of his attitude and disposition mm-hmm. that influences me than anything I've ever read from him. Um, in particular, I have read several books by him, but it's more of his personality and his approach to things that I think has been really influential to me. Yeah. Um, and it has helped me not to be, I think he's been, he's helped me not to be, uh, too despising of the world, Mm. but also not too loving of the world. And he's offered me a good balance, I think, of, of how to appreciate God and what God has given us in this good creation, but also to uh, avoid being overcome by the world and by the culture and the philosophies of the world. Any particular works that you go to for, this is my C.S. Lewis uh, resource. On C.S. Lewis or on by him or C.S. By him. Lewis? Either one really. So on him, my favorite is definitely Alistair McGrath's biography that was written several years ago. I think that was 2013. Was that the Narnian or is that a different one? No, uh, that would be uh, by, oh, I forget his first yeah. name, Ward is his last name, I think. Um, which that's, I've read a part of that book. I haven't made my way through through too much of it, but I did really enjoy where it was heading. <laughs> um, so my favorite one on Lewis is by McGrath. Um, okay, cool. And then my favorite book by Lewis is, well, I love mere Christianity, but the abolition of man is an interesting discussion of, of where human culture was headed in the 20th century and mm. really it rings true today okay, yeah. um, about uh, certain tendencies and trajectories that our Feeding modern our culture is, is, yep. is heading towards. So I think he was really perceptive about uh, cultural illnesses, you could say, even in his time. So, yeah, I guess that's a yeah. that's one maybe simple reason or a simple summary of why I like C.S. Lewis so much. And maybe one little thing I'd add about Lewis is that he is, to me, when some people talk about Lewis, they are misinterpreting his winsomeness as permissiveness. Definitely. That's a great point. <laughs> and so, like, a lot of more loose... Mm-hmm. often anti-biblical people who appreciate fable and wisdom literature. Yeah. They, they like see certain things about C.S. Lewis, but yeah. then when you actually read something by Lewis, like The Great Divorce, he is, he is cutting holes in the liberal sort of oh, yeah. hermeneutic and way of thinking. He, he, is, he spends a good amount of that book just incisively... Destroy, destroying the some of those uh, castles that they're building, the the foundations that they're yeah. building their theology. I've on. I've often seen Lewis heralded as sort of the aha, got you evangelicals sort of yeah, figure, right? Because he he advocated for uh, purgatory, for instance, okay. or he apparently I don't know that this is exactly true, but denied biblical inerrancy. Mm. Um, or what he meant by that. Or, yeah, been, what he would have yeah. meant by that. So that would be an interesting right. discussion. And there's a few other things that make him very clearly not in a classical evangelical, which right. is true. Yeah. Um, Lewis himself says, as it comes to churchmanship, he's writing as an Anglican, 
I'm neither high nor low. Um, he says he's <laughs> sort of in the, the middle of the road. Although looking at Lewis's theology, I think it is very Catholic with a small C. Mm-hmm. Um, and then therefore, in that sense, I think also quite conservative by today's standards. Sure. Um, sure. It may not be conservative by evangelical standards today, mm. but it would be conservative in a socio-political way, um, in a cultural way, in a moral way. His ethics were very conservative, I think. Um, and so mm, while yeah. he's not evangelical... Or even like his uh, his theology of sexuality was was a traditional... Right. Um, yeah, very old, what people would call old-fashioned. Tra- yeah, exactly. So, so Lewis... A good word for him would be traditional. Huh. He really liked the Christian tradition. Sure. And actually, one of the quotes that I have from him, which I'll, I'll read very quickly, is from his introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation. There was a new translation that came out during Lewis's lifetime. Wow. And so he was asked to write the introduction. And these words may seem familiar to some of you because it's a famous saying of his. He says this, talking about church history and the need for for reading church history. He says the only palliative is to keep to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries flowing through our minds. And this can be done only by reading old books. Not of course that there is any magic about the past. People were were no cleverer than we are now. Um, they made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing and their own errors being now open and palpable will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good of a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. And wow. so, that's yeah, that's an awesome representation of winsomeness and creativity. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And so his whole approach was: yeah. what do the, the the theologians and pastors of the past tell us about? Uh, Christianity. And so that's why he seeks for mere Christianity, which is not to say lowest common denominator <laughs> Christianity, but he's trying to get at what is the skeleton yeah. of Christianity. Foundational. What is What are the foundational beliefs that keep us all in this great stream together? Cool. Um, so yeah, yeah that's, that's another great reason awesome. I love C.S. Lewis. Yes, uh, I love him too. Uh, so my number two is Herman Bavink, and he is a Dutch theologian from you stole him from me <laughs> the, I know from the uh, the turn of the 20th century he he has sort of the heart of a pastor uh, so all three of mine are more Bavink was an intellectual for sure mm. of the highest order however you read him and see that he is someone with a pastoral heart and so yeah. one of his great followers was Louis Burkhoff who was a pastor who ended up then working at a seminary and um, Bavink preached as well. He preached sermons at churches and um, I have discovered him more recently, although I, I know that I was assigned to read him at seminary, having gone to Calvin Theological Seminary, but my I was told at seminary by a, a fellow student, of course not by a professor, but a student had said, don't even bother with Bavink. It's too dry. It's painful to labor through that <laughs> um, that man's work. Oh, and man. so I believed this and left Bavink on the proverbial shelf for hmm. probably 10 years, actually, because I've been a pastor now for almost 10 years, and I really have gotten into some of his work in the last year or so. So the wonderful works of God and Reformed dogmatics are his... Reformed dogmatics is four volumes. Wonderful works of God is a recently translated single volume synthesis of a lot of those other things that he wrote in the dogmatics. And so um, I love him because, again, you read his work and you you know from reading one page this man is an absolute pro. There is... Nothing is going to sneak by him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his mind is a steel trap. Is like <laughs> I, so it, it, I would I would liken it to listening to this young man Alex Honnold talk about rock climbing. You know, he's this guy mm-hmm. in the free solo okay. documentary, yeah. and you hear him talk about El Capitan, and he knows every crack in mm-hmm. that rock, 
and he he could tell you almost what his 83rd step will be wow and and that is how like he was on Jimmy Kimmel or something once and and <laughs> and he was being interviewed and and you just knew this guy's brain was made to climb rocks <laughs> and that's how I that's how I feel when reading Bavink's reform dogmatics mm. or wonderful works of God that, that the man's brain was made to communicate the word of God to communicate the majesty of God mm-hmm. um, to communicate reformed theology in a, um, at times um, dense way so it, it takes some oh, yeah. thought to get through it like I'm not gonna say that this is a light read that somebody would pick up it's not Max yeah. Lucado you know his his systematic theology reformed dogmatics is four large volumes yeah, I think each volume is seven or eight hundred pages yeah so it's it's quite massive yeah and so but if you were to get stuck with a topic like i do at times again within my preaching even this past week i was i wanted a a quote that was going to communicate the authority of god and so there i see on my shelf that there's in volume two is going to deal with god's providence and Hmm. so opened that up and just found absolutely page after page of loaded scripture reference teaching on what God does with his authority, with Mm. his providence, with his care over the world that he has made. And like, so I ended up using a quote and uh, just really stirred my heart. And I I would guess that it it hopefully did that for the people who are listening in my church. And then what I didn't include is the next page where he does this just like John Calvin does, where the, the, the sentence is almost a whole page long. Oh, yeah. And the reason that it's so long is because there are nine scripture references in parentheses <laughs> after every phrase. Yeah. Uh, the Westminster Catechism does that kind of yeah. thing as well. And so when I see that, even as a Christian, that is that makes my theological... Um, you know, uh, taste buds uh, sort of yeah. stimulated. Uh, <laughs> just as I see a page like that, I know... It whets your appetite. Right, that this is going to be an awesome series of descriptions of hmm. the glory of God or the providence of God or the grace of God. And so that is Bavink. Yeah. Um, and, and so you know, even just something like, you could be inspired by the index of a Bavink book. <laughs> I, I am. That's true. When I look at... The, the man would have seven pages of references in the back just to the Psalms alone. Yeah. So like in one volume, there might be six or seven pages of references to the Psalms. And so that excites me as a Reformed pastor. And yeah. that is really where I hope the Christian Reformed Church goes back towards is that in our synodical reports, in our banner articles, which is our monthly publication as a denomination in the sermons that come from Christian Reformed pulpits, they are just absolutely loaded with God's word, like the Institutes, Reformed Dogmatics, uh, Burkhoff Systematic Theology. Uh, to me, Bavink really represents that. Yeah, I think Bavink is maybe, maybe I'll go on the record and say the high watermark of Reformed theology in the past 500 years. I think several <laughs> call him that in the in the references to the book or yeah. the, on the sleeve of the book essentially saying that I, is the high point. I can't think of a better systematic theolo- theological text uh, that does a better job of yes referencing scripture just incredibly there's so much scripture packed in there it will it will take hours to read a page if you're trying to follow every scripture yeah. reference. Yeah, or if you're just trying to digest every idea to its fullest extent, it'll take yeah. a long time to get through a page. And so he's very biblical, but he's also very historical. A lot of his his work is, is going through the arguments of church history, which as someone who loves church history, I've always appreciated about his theology. Yeah. He's philosophical. He was very aware of what was going on in the philosophical world in the 19th century as he was writing and the, the late or the, yeah, yeah the late the 19th century yep. turn of the century into the 20th century as well and so he's very aware of cultural currents that were going on mm, yeah and all the while he maintains a sense of ironic peacefulness yeah um, even though he gets polemical 
and is making critiques yeah. and attacks on different understandings, different interpretations or worldviews. Mm. He is all the while maintaining a winsomeness mm. to him. He's he, always on the issue. Yeah, and he's not. He's getting, not a Martin Luther in right <laughs> in sort of attacking the person. Yeah, right? correct. And now he's I appreciate a lot bombastic. of things. Right, I appreciate a lot about Luther, but I would yeah. say Bavink really does keep things on the issue. He keeps his cool, but you're right. He also yeah. keeps that pastoral sensibility, which yeah. is rare. Often, you you'll be so cool headed that yeah. you will have a cool heart too. Yeah, there's no edge. Um, and yeah. and. So Bavink is one of my favorites too. He'd be on my list if he wasn't on yours. Yeah. All right. What's your next one? <laughs> so, Maybe. Uh... Yeah. So my next one is uh, Thomas Cranmer. And this, this will be real quick, but the reason I love Cranmer is particularly for the book of common prayer, uh, which I use often in my daily prayer life, um, doing the daily office. Uh, and so I love Cranmer. Cranmer, just a little bit of background on who he was. He was the archbishop under King Henry VIII and the English Reformation um, because he was an advocate of granting King Henry VIII's divorce, um, or at least he was okay with doing so. He was allowed to be the archbishop by King Henry VIII (laughs) and would slowly uh, bring in Reformation into England. At first, he was reading Lutheran theologians um, like like Luther. And and, Melanchthon, I'm sure. uh, yeah. Yeah. But over the course of his lifetime... He would, be, would begin to read more reformed voices like Calvin and Bootser and Bullinger and Vermigli. Um, and so we see in the English Reformation a sort of move from a Lutheran Protestantism to a reformed Protestantism. And all the while, he is slowly editing and making new editions of the Book of Common Prayer, moving it into a more Calvinistic position over time. So that by the time he dies in the 1550s, uh, he was actually a, a contact of Calvin. Him and Calvin would communicate often. And the, the prayer book was put together by Cranmer, also with the help of Bootser, who was one of Calvin's mentors, who was in exile in England and would help Cranmer come up with it. And also Peter Martyr Vermigli, who was an Italian Reformed theologian who was in exile out of Italy, who had to move to England as well. And so... Hmm. It's actually, scholars will say, a reformed prayer book in that sense uh, because it's written and sort of endorsed by reformed theologians of the early reformed period. And so I love that book, and so Cranmer makes the list for me. Well, and that's an accessible book, too. I think that sometimes people could hear a name from the 1500s and Hmm. think that they would never be able to understand or use it. But the Book of Common Prayer, I'd certainly use it when I officiate particularly mm-hmm. a graveside service. Yeah. That's, that's the, the form that I use. Hmm. The ashes to ashes, dust right. to dust yeah. is from the Book of Common Prayer. Yeah. And, um, and it's, but it's not just for that. It's for praying during grief and mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of awesome material in there that is yeah, really pastoral. Like I think that's the yeah. common thread of a lot of these is that these are not names of men who are sitting in an ivory tower somewhere, but they are preaching to people and speaking to real people Hmm. and they're connected to real people in a meaningful way, not just in their written work, but you can tell they're, they have a pastoral heart, Hmm. whether it's high theology or a sermon or a book of common prayer. So there's there's the famous marriage words you've probably heard dearly beloved. We are gathered here today in the presence of God and, and so that that's from the Book of Common Prayer. Yeah, the, at, mm. from ashes to ashes, dust to dust is from the Book of Common Prayer. So there, yeah. you get this sense of poetic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a sensibility of poetry there that Cranmer was very familiar with and was able to weave that in. Also, though, and I've noticed this by going to an Anglican church in Orlando and using it every week, there's so many prayers that that are biblically inspired. Yeah. Um, Little prayers, big prayers, yeah, <laughs> prayers, that you, occasional are... prayers, prayers that you hear every single week. You can you get a lot of scripture, and I've actually heard different people say that the Book of Common Prayer is eighty percent scripture. Hmm. I don't know. That's yeah, yeah I mean, you see it totally, everywhere. Yeah. Totally true, but uh, it is a very clearly scripturally inspired book. Um, and so, yeah, for me, That's it's awesome. very influential, and it's worth mentioning. Cool. And then my last one is Martin Lloyd Jones. And he, of course, was a pastor in England. He was a Welsh 
man, and he that's why his name Martin is spelled a little bit differently than the the typical English <laughs> spelling. It's M A R T Y N. So he was Welsh, and uh, he uh, I know a lot about him thanks to Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd Jones, and then of course I know his preaching because I've heard so many of his sermons. Anyways, he came from Wales. He was a doctor. So when he's called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that isn't just a phony theological thing that... Uh, it's not you, just a PhD. Well, it's and or even just an imaginary doctorate, which some pastors seem to have today. All yeah. of a sudden, somebody's called doctor because <laughs> they're part of a big church. No, he was actually a medical doctor, and he was really moving towards becoming one of the top doctors in all of England. Hmm. And he had this call to preach the gospel. I love his description of his call, which uh, he's asked that question. And you can look it up on YouTube, Martin Lloyd-Jones on why preach the gospel. And his answer is, or, or on his pastoral call, he said, I felt that I would have something to say and that I would have the ability to say it in a way that would kind of bring glory to God and help people grow in their faith. So it has something to do with a sense of the gospel, a sense of the word of God, and also the ability, which he certainly had, to preach to people in a way that would engage them in both the heart and mind, and he certainly did that. So again, I had never heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones while I was at seminary, but hmm. while I was do in my first pastorate, I was really hungry for continuing education, you'd probably call it. And I stumbled on Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think it might have been through YouTube. Hmm. And then I start I went to mljtrust.org, which is yeah. the trust of all his sermons that were recorded, which are the vast majority, I believe. And I just, it was awesome. I, I you just every, devoured them. So I was in the car a lot because I was on in a little town with people spread out all over the place. It was a farm yeah. town, so I was on country roads all the time. I would have to drive 25 minutes to somebody's house, and it was going to be a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon hmm. while I was on my way there and on my way back. And so some sermons that some people might find helpful are... One of my two favorite sermons, one is Heaven, A World of Love by Jonathan Edwards, which I already mentioned. My other favorite sermon is called The Healing of the Man at the Gate Beautiful by Martin Lloyd-Jones on Acts 3. It's the story of Peter and John healing the crippled man. And um, that is a eloquent, powerful, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting sermon if you ever want to hear one. The Healing of the Man at the Gate Beautiful from mljtrust.org. And then he also has a, a great sermon called Assurance and Sanctification, where he says that any assurance that doesn't lead to sanctification is a false assurance. And so hmm. to me, that that just like in one sentence shatters liberal theology, basically. <laughs> um, any assurance that does not lead to biblical sanctification is a false assurance. Hmm. And so he explores that by using John 1. Um, and so... It's he's awesome. He's passionate. He's been called a minister. His, his preaching style is called logic on fire, hmm. and I like that a lot. It, that that's maybe the theme of all three of mine are this really nice combination of thought, deep thought, intellectual rigor, hmm. careful speech, and careful presentation of of the gospel as it should be from God's word, while also recognizing we have got to move hearts towards loving God. Yeah, um, that means our hearts must be moved. Yeah, and so Martin Lloyd-Jones really captures that. There's, If you're interested and you like watching documentaries, and maybe if you have Amazon Prime as well, <laughs> you can watch the documentary Logic on Fire for free. I just watched it last week with my wife, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was a fun a dive into Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've not read as much as Mark. I've heard of him. I've listened to him mm. occasionally, but it was fun getting to know the man and his life. Yeah, and I even had the privilege of worshiping at Westminster Chapel, which was his church for, <laughs> I believe, about 30 years that is in London. Not Westminster Abbey, not Westminster <laughs> yeah, Cathedral. Not to be confused. Uh, and, but Westminster Chapel. Uh, so there are Westminsters all over the place, because that just means 
the church in the West, right? Minster is yeah. church. And so anything West of downtown London <laughs> at the time would have been like a Westminster. Uh, sure. So anyways, it's Westminster Chapel. And I would say, if you're going to start listening to Lloyd-Jones, the first time you listen to him, you might not like his voice very much. He has it's an interesting accent. a high-pitched voice. Yeah. He talks like this, <laughs> oh, oh, and, and, and he sounds a little bit strange when he when you first hear him, but you get used to it very quickly, and you'll find eventually that you really like and appreciate sure. how his voice sounds. So uh, we could move now into rapid All fire right. round. You want to go through yeah. a list of others that you have been blessed by? Okay, so for this one, I guess I'll just run through my list. Sure, and I'll go. give like a split second reason for why I yeah, like maybe a reference uh, like that people could look up. Yeah, to. so for I, I've sort of categorized mine into more recent voices, reformational voices, and patristic voices, uh, just for simplicity's <laughs> sake. So some of the more recent voices that I've really appreciated are two of my professors, um, Mike Allen and Scott Swain. Their book, Reformational or Reformed Catholicity, excuse me. Uh, is a very influential book in my thinking, which is about sola scriptura and how to uh, read the Bible in line with the tradition of Christianity, and this goes to this is sort of the Catholic tradition, hence the name Reformed Catholicity, um, and seeing how Reformed theology is Catholic, but also doing that in a way that upholds sola scriptura and upholds the uh, the authority of Scripture. Um, another recent voice that I really appreciate is Peter Lightheart, mostly known as a blogger, yeah, first um, and as a teacher. So yeah, he, he uh, runs the Theopolis Institute. He's sort of the founder of that, um, which is a, the, a an institute about theology, culture, and liturgy. Um, and one of his, uh, I guess, fellows there at the Theopolis Institute is Alistair Roberts. Um, Alistair Roberts is also a blogger. Both of these guys, um, I, I would say, embody, uh, albeit in different ways, they mm-hmm. embody what it looks like to be Reformed Catholics in yeah. in interesting ways, and so Alist Roberts is really one of my favorite young voices, alongside Brad Littlejohn. So Alistair Roberts works at Theopolis Institute and also at the Davenant Institute, and the Davenant Institute is Brad Littlejohn's sort of think tank, and he does political theology, and I think he's one of the best at it right now mm-hmm. as a Reformed theologian. Um, now moving on to more systematic theologians that are alive or or more recent. Uh, Bob Lethem uh, from Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. Um, Gerald Bray from Beeson Divinity School. I think Gerald Bray is actually one of the best historical theologians in the Reformed and Evangelical world right now. Whenever I want to learn church history, I go to Gerald Bray first. Hmm. Um, Jamie Smith from Calvin College. I think his work on uh, what he has called the Cultural Liturgies Mm -hmm. Project has been really influential for me. I, Letters to a Young Calvinist. Letters to a Young Calvinist is a good little book if you're new to the Reformed faith. Um, no, there's not. This is, he's he'd be, he'd be one of those cases where I wouldn't want to endorse everything that he says. <laughs> Desiring the Kingdom uh, is good too. Yeah, but I I did find yeah, his book Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom. Yeah, um, and you are what you love to be some really really helpful material for me we'd say take the books leave the twitter feed yeah exactly (laughs) i would agree and leave the blogs um another one who's now dead but he's from the 20th century is tom odin a famous methodist theologian who was as he was growing up was more mainline and liberal and then had a sort of conversion you could say i think i think he would say that uh to traditional christianity and so his works, he has a three-volume systematic theology um, that is really profound to me. And, and it's sort of similar to Bavinck's, but instead of referencing so much scripture, which he does, what he's trying to do is show the great tradition of Christianity. And so he'll reference Calvin right alongside the church fathers, mm. right alongside medieval theologians like Anselm or Aquinas. Yeah. And so he's trying to show sort of the 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 bigness of the tradition and sort of the continuity of of the early church through the medieval period to the Reformation to now, and I think he does a pretty great job at that. Um, Bavink, of course, would be another one for me. We've already talked about him. Philip Schaff, for, also from the German Reformed yep. Church. He's sort of a uh, colleague of Nevin for many years. Yeah, he kind of resurrected the 
anti-Nicene and post-Nicene right. fathers. So right? the, all those volumes, it's a yeah. 30, 38 volumes, Amazing. he translated um, or oversaw the translation of all of those. And he wrote many books on church history. And one of his books, The Principle of Protestantism, is one of my favorite books on what it means to be a Protestant. And it's it's been influential in me remaining a Protestant to this day. Uh, Reformational voices, I'll just jump through these really quickly. John Calvin, Martin Bootser, Peter Martyr Vermigli, Heinrich Bollinger, John Jewell, Richard Hooker, and Richard Baxter. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe you can look into all those names. I won't explain all of them. But I also love Church Fathers, and so Athanasius, John Chrysostom, Augustine, and Basil would yeah. be at the top of the list for me. Yeah, and I I would go right from Augustine, who I'm a huge fan of, and that's another, he's another one where people would probably tell you, oh, City of God or the Confessions are just laborious and difficult and dry, but don't believe people when they say that. It's worth the hard work of hmm. reading the Confessions. Yeah, the um, Confessions in particular are very good. Probably my favorite passage outside of the Bible that I've ever read is in the opening chapters of the Confessions where Augustine is trying to figure out what God is like, you know, hmm. our, and, and he just gives this amazing description that shows all these antinomies and... Um, they would look to the world like paradoxes, but they are in the nature of God, you know, for example, that he is always at rest and always hmm. at work and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah, those are great. And so I even know a pastor who, after I was waxing eloquent about that passage, he did a sermon series on all of those antinomies in <laughs> Augustine's Confessions. And so that would be high up there for me. But uh, I have I have quite a bit fewer than uh, Zach does. <laughs> I a went lot of overboard. Reading. I'm well, sorry, he's, everyone. Well, he's a he's a reader, and that's great. That, that's awesome. Uh, but mine towards the top of my list would be John Bunyan because I love the Pilgrim's Progress, and Charles Spurgeon. Again, I sort of started out this out by saying mm. that when I'm really stuck with a text mm. and not knowing exactly how I can apply a text to people people's lives in a kind of a punchy, memorable, helpful, even powerful way. Spurgeon is the master of, of doing that. And so yeah, there Spurgeon's are there are many times where you could find a fairly obscure text and Spurgeon just absolutely kills it. Like, for example, he preaches on the topic of modesty and he looks at Romans 8 where there's the promise there that those he justified he will glorify. And so he says, you can be modest because God will Mm. glorify you Mm. because you don't have to glorify yourself. And so just like those kinds of amazing applications are awesome and they're all over the place. And if you are a Facebook friend of mine, you see that I will quote uh, Spurgeon fairly regularly to encourage the people that I know through Facebook. Mm. Uh, So Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle is... Hmm. And in the same, he J.C. Ryle, same time too. If if one is ever preaching on Sodom and Gomorrah, J.C. Ryle has an absolutely amazing sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah. So I just love when I can find those ministers who are so saturated with God's word and so full of faith that they hmm. can find these wonderful truths. And uh, like he uses the Sodom and Gomorrah story to say looking at Lot's wife. Don't look back. Don't look back at the world that you're leaving behind. And so he, he has a real flurry of uh, emotion and uh, and energy at the end of that sermon with, with all the things that we're called not to look back towards in the world. So hmm. J.C. Ryle is great. He was a bishop of Liverpool. And, of course, Calvin. And then more modern, uh, I really enjoy John Piper. Yeah. And I appreciate him a lot. Also, Tim Keller, particularly his books, Reason for God and Center Church, I really like. Center Church really helps me think about being a church leader in the 21st century, which Tim Keller is a very good, we would even say very successful church leader, which is Mm -hmm. a good thing to learn from people who have successfully planted a church and helped to turn things around in different places that he's gone. Also, Doug Wilson is a controversial oh, yeah. <laughs> voice that I would add, but 
I I believe when I listen to Doug Wilson, he he is a master sermon illustrator. Oh he, yeah, he is super creative. A little bit like what I mentioned about Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, where he will take a text that we've heard a lot and might just think we know, and without being too creative and making it extra biblical and heterodox, he adds a lot of punch to it and mm-hmm. helps you see a text in a new light. And yeah. he, I also appreciate his courage. I think that at times we evangelicals become what he would, would call even jellyfish mm-hmm. and can just fold far too quickly and give up on the word of God and not stand on it as strongly as we should, which he certainly does and is mocked and ridiculed. And sometimes he goes too far, and I would disagree with many of the political kinds of things that he says, but Mm -hmm. he can be helpful. And then Jeff Durbin is a name that I appreciate a lot. He is a pastor in Tempe, Arizona, of Apologia Church, and he's doing really awesome work with apologetics and street-side Mm-hmm. ministry outside abortion clinics where he'll be there and record things and so on youtube look up apologia church and just look up abortion and you'll see him having some really amazing conversations with people outside abortion clinics and the lot the language will be strong because people <laughs> swear at him all the time and yeah. they're very angry at him but he always works to overcome evil with good and i appreciate that a lot a lot about him yeah he has a famous sort of sort of famous podcast called cultish which mm. also deals with a yeah. lot of different christian cults yeah it's, um, it, he really he really uses media in a powerful yeah. and helpful way i would say and so i appreciate that about him yeah so okay if you've suffered through all of our <laughs> long list mine especially uh, we congratulate you well, let's turn now at the end here to saying okay now we've gotten all of this off our chest we've <laughs> We've mentioned all of our favorite names that we love. And so how do we avoid then hero worship? I think in the Reformed world, and maybe in other traditions too. A little bit less in the CRC. Right. But very powerfully in the Baptist Reformed and Presbyterian Reformed world. Yeah, We sort of prop up our heroes in, in unhealthy ways. And so what does that look like and how do we avoid doing that? Uh, I would say, to be really brief, we read the Bible to avoid that. Hmm. We we elevate Jesus Christ as the most attractive person to us. Yeah. And model ministry after him, his life, his love that he showed neighbors, the way that he spoke the truth, the work that he did at the cross and in his resurrection and ascension, and he continues to do through his Holy Spirit. So we love him the most, and we are called to be imitators of Christ, not imitators of John Piper or mm-hmm. John Kelvin or whoever else. And so That's a good point. And John Piper is very helpful about this, actually, mm-hmm. and he will say, be yourself. Be yeah. who Christ calls you to be. Don't try to be me. Don't try to be Tim Keller. Don't try to be Don Carson. Don Carson's another one that I would add for sure to my list uh, as a New Testament theologian. But... Um, yeah, we read the scriptures. I think at times we will find the Bible will correct sometimes even what we like about one of these heroes. Yeah. Uh, and it will call us to compassion where our heroes might all be suddenly very courageous and bombastic and brash. Well, <laughs> at times we're called out of that into humility <laughs> and into service, humble service. Um, so remembering mm. Philippians two, the ministry of Jesus that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but left the glories of heaven mm. to be a servant to to be obedient even to death on a cross. I think that when we love certain heroes, we kind of imagine ourselves as elevating to a similar position to those heroes and yeah. wanting to be like them and be influential and but Christ calls us to take up our cross daily to become a servant of all so forth. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the first thing. Uh, learn scripture, be tethered to scripture yeah. first and be able to be honest with yourself when your hero isn't exactly on par with scripture. Right. Isn't, isn't. Which, yeah, even so my top one was Jonathan Edwards mm-hmm. where he had, 
he owned slaves, which is a big problem, of right. course. And so where he is speaking about the image of God, I should probably be a little bit careful yeah. uh, in how I read that now, where he's speaking on the incarnation or other things, hmm. uh, the whole the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, I would say awesome. But there, hmm. there will be niches, I would say, for each of these people yeah. who are, are going to, they're, they're going to have some blinders on when they deal with the niche, just like I would in certain places as well. Hmm. So sorry to interrupt. But. No, no, that's good. I, I think for me, what I would, I guess, only add to that would be what C.S. Lewis said in the quote that I read earlier sure. about yeah. having the clean sea breeze of the centuries flowing through our minds. And we can do this by reading old books. So we can sort of balance out or broaden our perspective by by reading other voices especially reading voices from different times um, and so it's been helpful for me when i came into reformed theology i loved john piper i loved uh, even john MacArthur, um, matt chandler mm-hmm. mark driscoll mm-hmm. i would say of these four i really still love piper and find chandler to be helpful from time to time i'm less of a fan i guess of the other two, um, but I I began to read broadly, and it helped me expand my understanding in a way that saw like it was more balanced and it was more holistic and well-rounded, I guess I would say. Um, and so that is how we can avoid hero worship um, because mm-hmm. they're humans too. We have to yeah. realize that they're not going to they don't have scripture perfectly understood, and that every little thing they say is going to be amazing we have to realize that even they have their blind spots. And so we need to do as much as we can to avoid falling into the same blind spots that they had. Um, and so if somebody really reads some more bombastic people like Doug Wilson, sure, balance it out with, yeah. with reading someone else, like maybe even a Wesley Hill or yeah. um, someone who's really careful, someone you may disagree with yeah. even, and who may be, much who may approach things in a much more soft or delicate Tim way. Challies is a good example right. of that. He's he's careful. You know, he's yeah. not like in your face and he's very thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Um so listen broadly, read broadly. I guess that that would be yeah. what I would say to that particular thing. Yeah. Um but I unless there's anything yeah, else. Yeah, well maybe one more is that we should make sure we love the people that the Lord places in our lives more than we love our theological heroes even. Yeah. Um, I think that at times we could probably tell, wow, I would just be so happy if so-and-so approved of me or, or I'm, I'm so into like, I, you know, a certain thinker that it's like all I think about Yeah. at the expense at times of people that the Lord wants me to go and sit with or call on the phone now that COVID is happening, mm-hmm. and really do ministry. I think that hero worship can detract from ministry sometimes. Yeah. If we, if I just want to sit and read Reform Dogmatics for three <laughs> straight days, I would really enjoy that, mm-hmm. but that is pulling me away from my family and pulling me yeah. away from my church mm-hmm. and from my sermon prep and from planning some things that I might not feel like working on all that much right now, but I have to do it because it's God's vocation for me it's his call for me so i think hero worship particularly in the reformed context can pull us away from people yeah at times and that is of course the opposite of the ministry of jesus christ where he was going into people's lives and going from town to town and he had his good friends lazarus and mary and martha but he didn't he didn't just stay in bethany forever and (laughs) he he went around and met with people in capernaum and in, in all these different places where, where he went. So I think that is, he didn't just stay in one place, I guess, mm-hmm. physically. <laughs> and that maybe should represent some of the diversity of thought that we should welcome into our lives as well. That's maybe being a little bit loose with interpretation, but I think the general principle mm-hmm. is a, hel- uh, a helpful one that Jesus went out from town to town yeah. and met with people. And um, he wasn't just a teacher, Hmm. He but he he cared for people and helped people and lived with people, yeah. and so sometimes if we worship our reformed heroes too much, we might project that into that understanding onto Jesus as hmm. a teacher, 
and yeah. minimize the work of love and self-sacrifice and the hard relationships that he invested in along the way. Um, sometimes when we get in, wanted to get into our ivory towers, I think we're kind of retreating slothfully. From, yeah, it's the easy thing to do. From those difficult conversations that God wants us to have with somebody in the church or even just spending time with friends too. Yeah, as I was heading out to seminary, I had my bags packed and was about to leave and my pastor at the time told me, and I'll never forget it, Zach, love people more than you love books. Um, and I think that that's a good way to avoid yep. hero worship. That's a great Learning to, to follow Christ um, into loving people more and I than think, we love paper. I think and, part and, of the reason that we like each of these people is that they did that. Yeah. So that's a good thing. But Satan can use a good thing and turn it, warp it into something that is really destructive, actually. So yeah. we should be careful to receive this as good stuff. Edwards, Bovink, Lloyd-Jones, Nevin, Lewis, Cranmer, awesome, helpful guys. Mm-hmm. Not perfect, but and, and, no and, and neither do they take the place of ministry. It's just to know what they have said. So hopefully that's been helpful for you guys. And if you can uh, get in touch with us, I think that would be cool yeah. to hear from some people who uh, that you enjoy listening to, particularly if you're a member of Almond Valley CRC. Uh, mm-hmm. We'd love to hear what you're reading and what has blessed you. But make sure to like or subscribe or do whatever you have to do to keep track of us when we put new episodes out. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, guys.